every job I've gotten in the funeral service, I've never done before, but I always have told myself, say yes, and then figure it out. And so far, it's kind of worked out for me. And then I spent the last 15 years prior to joining Fairmount in 2018, last 15 years of my career being a general manager. We lived in Seattle at the time, so a couple of facilities over there. And then I got transferred to Spokane with my former employer to run the funeral homes here. And then I got recruited by the competitor to join them because I think that was the smartest strategy, I think for Fairmount was to take your competitor out by hiring them, right? So I have a pretty smart CEO. Welcome to the Direct Cremation Podcast with your hosts, Tyler Yamasaki and Will DeMichaelis. Hi, thank you for joining us on the Direct Cremation Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Yamasaki, CEO of Parting Pro. And as always, I'm here with my co-host, Will DeMichaelis, funeral home consultant and former manager of the Omega Society, a cremation brand that served over 4,500 families per year at its peak. And as always, you can find links to both of our products and services below. So today's guest spent almost two decades at SCI cutting her teeth in death care. However, since leaving in 2018, she has since been the president of the Washington Cemetery Crematory and Funeral Association, a current board member of the Cremation Association of North America, a founding member of the Death Care Collective, and in her spare time, the Chief Operating Officer of the Fairmount Memorial Association, where she manages a collection of seven memorial parks and cemeteries, and I think a few cremation brands. She may not be the loudest speaker, but her actions and accomplishments speak volumes. Please welcome Sandra Walker to the podcast. Hi, you Sandra. guys. Hi Hello. there. Thanks Hi, for Sandra. having me. Welcome. We're happy to have you. Thank you. We just came back from NFDA. I feel like that's the only time I actually get to see you, but I see you at a lot of the shows. Yes. Uh, you know, it's only my second time at an FDA. And, you know, I go to different shows. I mean, obviously, Kena and NFDA just seems like fun. Like there's tons of people and I'm an introvert. So it's always out of my comfort zone. I just love the expo hall. Like that's my favorite part about NFDA, just walking the halls and looking at what's new and innovative out there in our profession. And then, of course, meeting my friends like you, Tyler. I always joke that. It's <laughs> I definitely my time feel to that. And there's always friends. like this weird, like meeting at shows, there's really no other relationship kind of like that because it's like you kind of pick up right where you left off six months ago or something. And um, it's like this weird understanding where, you know, there's this big gap, but we see each other at these shows and we're always friendly. And you kind of do like just meet your friends at the shows. I'm new to the scene as well. And I found that to be the case, you know, it's just really nice to be there every time. Yeah. It's been well received for me seeing everybody and how everybody interacts at those events. I've never been to NFDA. So I like hearing it secondhand. I'm hoping to go next year. And it's just a great reminder too, that we have kind and compassionate people that makes up our profession. And it just always feels me emotionally after I go back home. I kind of miss all my friends. And then I just realized so much talent and so much yeah. people doing so much good. Yeah, it's definitely a good time. And you definitely get to meet people. And um, definitely reminds you, I think, of why you're here and what yeah. you're doing. But speaking of you, you've actually accomplished quite a bit so far. And we highlighted some of that in your intro. But could you maybe give us a background in your own words about your journey in death care to where you are now? It's very unconventional. It's kind of funny. I look back at the last almost 25 years and really death care was not an, something that was on my radar or I didn't want to be in death care. I actually grew up in Vancouver, British Columbia, and I graduated from Simon Fraser University. My degree was in criminology double minored in political science. And um, my goal was to be an attorney. <laughs> and so it was a four-year degree that I did in three, because if anybody knows where Simon Fraser University is, it's on a mountain. And I realized I didn't want to take the bus up the mountain for four years. So I did it in three. <laughs> and when I graduated, I wanted to take a break before I did my LSATs, because then that was the next step to go to law school. And I had a friend that worked for a temporary agency. And she said, why don't you temp? 
like just do some tamping work. And I was like, cool. You know, at the time I was 22 years old. And so I decided to take a one week project with a group called the Lowen Group. And it was a really monotonous project. Uh, we had to transfer files from the Philadelphia office that they were closing back to Vancouver. It was the payroll department. So my first desk in funeral service was the lunchroom on the seventh floor of the Metro Towers in this payroll office. And there was four tents and they said it would be a week. So I started in 98, March 1999. I was still there. <laughs> so I'm like, this is the longest week ever. And I guess the other tents were turning over because it was a very boring job. Like, you know, and here I was a graduate with a degree and I'm doing minimal task of alphabetizing people's files, employees, you know, A, B, C, creating new files. But I think the payroll manager recognized that maybe because I stuck it out that I should become a payroll clerk. So then I decided to do that because it was still within my time frame of the year that I was going to take before I went to law school. And then it just kind of continued from there. I became a payroll officer and that's how I got introduced to funeral service really that way. Cause I did payroll for the Western United States for the Lowen group at the time. And I met vice president, a senior vice president named Sean Phillips, and I was his payroll officer. And I just began to de develop relationships with all the funeral home managers, right? Like they call me if somebody's paycheck is not right, if they have to terminate someone. So I started to just ask questions like, what is it like in the field? And the stories were so intriguing that I was like, hey, I'm still within my year. And then I got to develop a relationship with Sean. And so I jokingly said one day, I want to move to Washington. And I didn't really think anything of it. But then he called me up and he said, we have an opening in Washington. Would you like to come? And so I was like, okay. So then the company had the attorney do all of my immigration paperwork. And I remember taking the packet and there was no guarantee that I would get a work visa because you need a work visa to work in the United States. And at the time, I didn't know how to drive, right? So I took the tourist bus with my work visa. And there was like 50 other people on the bus. And I go to the border and I am holding up this bus because now I have to go to immigration to get my visa approved. And I just remember the guy saying, an L1B off the freaking bus. Like, I remember that, like the customs officer, the immigration officer, he was not happy. But for some reason, he stamped it approved. And mind you, to get an L1B, it has to be a job that no other person in America can do. And what I ended up doing was being an admin, an administrator at a funeral home and cemetery in Seattle. And then from there, I continued to just work and learn from, I had great mentors. The location manager there, who's a really good friend of mine now, Henry Kearns, really mentored me and shaped me as a young person. I had great funeral directors that taught me a lot about funeral service. I remember seeing my first decedent and I was like, I uh, can't do this. Like, I can't do this. So things just continue to grow for me. And I think... It was just because I was young and I took risks. And when I think about it now, I was like, how did I get here? So it's just kind of funny how my career started. So I was never, every job I've gotten in the funeral service, I've never done before. But I always have told myself, say yes, and then figure it out. And so far, it's kind of worked out for me. And then I spent the last 15 years prior to joining Fairmount in 2018, last 15 years of my career, being a general manager for different, we lived in Seattle at the time. So a couple of facilities over there. And then I got transferred to Spokane with my former employer to run the funeral homes here. And then I got recruited by the competitor <laughs> to join them. Because I think, quite frankly, that was the smartest 
strategy, I think, for Fairmount was to take your competitor out by hiring them, <laughs> right? So I have a pretty smart CEO. Yeah, good move. <laughs> That's just a synopsis, but very interesting. I don't know. Sometimes I look back and I, I say to myself, I yeah. think the profession found me because I wanted to be an attorney, like since I was seven. You're but actually the second too, person so. we've talked to on the podcast this week that wanted to be a lawyer first yep. and then found their way into death care. Yep. Um, <laughs> You're not alone. Yeah. You know? So I don't know. So maybe, I don't know, maybe hopeful lawyers turn death care professionals are the success playbook to, to, be, to being a successful death care people. I guess maybe sometimes when you're having to look at the RCWs and the WACs and the laws, <laughs> I guess like, oh, I get to play kind um, of a lawyer. Yeah. So basically <laughs> a chance temp job turned into an entire career into death care that into a country that you weren't even necessarily planning to be working in. Jeez. Wow. Yeah, that is correct. And I think it just comes down to one person believing in me when I look back at my career and I tell him all the time when I have the opportunity, but he never gave up on me because there was a point in my career where I lost my work visa. They wouldn't renew it. And he could have just said, thanks for your service. And we wish you well in Canada and good luck. But he stuck by me and had to move back to Canada for a while. He took good care of me when I lost my job. I had to give up my home. I had to give up everything I had known for the last three years and move back to Canada because in order to go through the immigration process, you got to go back to your home. When you're under appeal, you had to go back to your country of origin. But all of that worked out because then somewhere in there, I met my husband. So <laughs> I ended up coming back on a spousal visa. Yeah. So I jokingly say to my husband, you're my green card husband. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess it's kind of a fun story now when I look back, but I didn't really think of it being different because I was like, I was literally jobless and homeless, but this man and then Beth Wagner, who was our controller, these two people stood by me and believed in me. They believed in me more than I ever believed in myself. Great story to tell for Uh, this podcast because we talk a lot about managing. We talk a lot about leadership. We talk a lot about sticking, knowing what your best people need and delivering on that as an owner or manager. And your story is a testament to how great that can work out. And that's beautiful to see. You're in a cease. You're an executive at a company. And if that hadn't happened, you'd be in Canada. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> putting <laughs> putting maple syrup, syrup in your car. Yeah. I've been very fortunate and blessed. And I remember mm-hmm. that as I try to lead as well and do for others how others have Like, I know me. that that story sounds very much like you had a lot of help and you had a lot of support. But I think that seeing what you've accomplished so far in death care, I, I definitely know that that's because you were the person to solve problems and you were, you know, the person to get things done. So I think you tell it with a very humble edge, but I know that there was definitely accomplishment and hard work there that got you to where you are. Absolutely. But yeah. So being at a company like, and obviously I think the whole SCI versus type of mentality is, is one that, you know, runs deep within death care and death care providers and everyone. But as someone who spent a large part of their career at SCI and then moving on to seeming to like really excel after that, do you feel like you learned a lot working at SCI that prepared you to later do well at smaller companies or starting other initiatives and working for like Kena and things like that? I had a great career with SCI and I'm very thankful for everything I learned. And when you think of an organization, I think you think the leadership is what makes you describe an organization, right? And because, you know, SCI is a name, but your experience is based on those around you and your leaders. And I had amazing, amazing leaders that gave me opportunities to learn 
It's a great organization when you're a brand new manager, the tools, the resources. So I learned a lot in there. And one of the things that really sparked my interest and began my journey of being an entrepreneur and being able to utilize creativity and all of that that has served me well here now was starting a storefront for them here in Spokane before I left. And during that process, the creative process and the independent thinking, I think really set me up well for transitioning into a smaller organization with not as many resources and tools. So I'm very grateful for that experience. And it's a great That's nice to hear. It's nice to give credit where it's due. And especially like with how your career turned out, you certainly owe a lot to them. And you have an array of accomplishments at every place that you've worked. And any of those accomplishments can really stand on their own. But you continue to grow and grow and do more and more. What continues this drive within you in death care? That's a good question. Probably because of my parents. I mean, I'm Asian, so you got to do well. (laughs) I feel you. I feel you. I'm joking. But my parents had... (laughs) My parents have strong work ethics. And I think, you know, I just read myself as somebody who's tenacious and my husband kind of describes it perfect. It's what makes me successful is because I'm always wanting to learn. I love learning. I was just thinking this morning, if I had enough money to not have to work, I'd be a lifelong student. I was always a very good student and I just strive to learn and learn from others and learn specifically from those not like me. Because I think they make you better and they provide a different perspective. So I think it's just, I have this internal drive and maybe this critic in my head that says it's never good enough. <laughs> it's a double-edged sword. It's a a really, it's a double-edged sword. <laughs> but yeah. I think it's yeah. just that internal. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. But it's never good enough for me. And so it is a double-edged sword because it, can be frustrating for those around. I think that definitely leads to your success as well, though. Right? That's definitely a driver. What is your ethnic cultural background? So thanks for asking. So I know everybody always wonders that. So my paternal grandpa is Chinese. So my mom is Chinese and Samoan. And then my dad is South Indian. So his heritage is from India, but I was born in the Fiji Islands and then immigrated to Canada when I was nine. (laughs) So, well, that is a different race, but that would be the nationality. So I'd be, I would say Mm. that I'm half Indian, Chinese and Samoan. Yeah. Yeah. But a lot of folks say I'm Fijian because, you know, but Fijians are different. Yeah. Okay. So that's... (laughs) I don't think I would have ever guessed that, but that is a very diverse mix. Yeah, you should ask my kids because they're even more confused than I am. (laughs) We're just having that conversation of who am I, right? Like, so they're trying to figure out how do they fit in because their dad is German, you know, Scottish. Right. right. I'm like, how old are your kids? Just who you are. Yeah. 14 and 11. Yes. Uh, hmm. hard age wow <laughs> two girls two girls yeah, yeah. so I <laughs> sometimes have uh yes. balancing the kids and work the work ends up being uh the easier part yes it's challenging and you know this is kind of where the death care collective comes in to play and my passion for that organization it's just a different challenge being a working mom and the guilt that goes with it, maybe some of the, it was so weird. So many years ago, this pastor had come in to do a service and he made the comment that I would sell my children for corporate or something like that. Something crazy. Like it was just crazy. It was really crazy comment. And that just like resonated with me. Like, huh, they think differently of women in leadership. 
he wouldn't have said that to a male counterpart, right? So I thought that was interesting, his comment. Like almost like you're a mom. Because I had just recently, when he had come in, I just had my oldest daughter at the time. And he just made that comment. And I didn't really understand Mm -hmm. at the time what he was alluding to till I reflected back. And I was like, Let's talk about the Death Care Collective. What is the mission of Mm -hmm. the Death Care Collective? And why did you start it? So it's kind of a really interesting journey. So there's nine of us in it. Was the probably the last founding member to join. And my friend Olga Pila, my best friend Olga Pila, was the one that kind of introduced me to the other ladies. And I think it really started with Olga and Erin Krieger, which is the other founding member. They started to have virtual coffee during COVID because... For a lot of folks that Mm -hmm. worked remotely, that isolation and that feeling of loneliness and sense of connection. So they were just on LinkedIn interacting with each other, didn't really know each other. And then it started with a virtual coffee date between the two of them. And then this just grew into a book club. And then it just grew into like, let's create something called the Death Care Collective. And it's really about empowering women and uplifting each other and just providing that support, right? So... Everybody, men or women in the profession, need some kind of support. But we recognize that there's a space maybe that women need a little bit more support. And, you know, people are like, oh, you're anti-men or whatever. And that is not the case. It's really, you know, one doesn't have to exist void of the other, right? But I think it's just really about those that want to be part of a community, those that have the same struggles with some of us, like, founding members, we have mm-hmm. imposter syndrome, right? There's others that probably have that. A lot of us have children and we're trying to work and trying to be funeral directors and trying to adhere to the hard schedule that is expected of funeral directors to go do removals at night. But then you have children at home sleeping. And how do you do that? So it's just really about creating resources, education, mentorship, and sponsorship. Because I think, you know, one of the things I did a a certification of women in leadership with Gonzaga University here in Spokane in 2021. And one of the things that really resonated with me is women tend to be overly mentored, but never sponsored. And really the difference is sponsorship. It's putting women in connection with other people that can help them grow their careers. So part of that is where the networking comes in and introducing our members to maybe potential employers and trying to elevate women into leadership roles because, you know, studies have shown companies that hire women in higher positions tend to do better. So we're all about helping our members grow and meeting them where they're at because everybody has different needs, right? And it's almost like a sisterhood. And it's kind of funny because we just didn't know what would come of it. Because it was just something that the nine women needed and we thought we'd share it with others. So like we'll do virtual events. We've done several amazing virtual events. And typically 20 to 30 women will attend these virtual events. And I think the benefit of our virtual events is not necessarily the content, but the time Mm -hmm. to do breakout sessions and just engage with each other. And I can say through the Death Care Collective, I've met a lot of amazing women that I would have never met because we live in different parts of our country. And I just think it's a great community now and everybody's supporting each other and confidence and confidentiality is something so important to this group. So it's building trust. I think that's a really valuable resource that you guys are creating, especially considering as we see the demographic of the, incoming class of mortuary students, Mm -hmm. funeral directors entering death care, especially because right now, you know, the positions of power are are still held kind of by the old guard and the old way of thinking of, you know, I'd say quote unquote traditional way of thinking, I guess. So something like that to provide for, you know, what's going to be the majority of the workforce in death care yeah. is definitely something Dude. that, yeah, 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 yeah is going to be super important, if not already. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting, right? Because they say like 80% of students in mortuary school are women, but yet there's this gap of us trying to find employees 
and trying to fill our positions. You know, there's a shortage. And so it's like, where are they going? Where are all these graduates going? I'd be interested to know. I don't know how many total graduates of mortuary science there are per year. I imagine there's not enough to fill every vacant job in the industry, which is something that I've always championed, you know, recruiting outside the industry. There are plenty of really empathetic, compassionate people that can be trained in this type of customer service in any part of the death care process, you know, you can fit. I mean, even you, you know, you started as a temp, you know, and I, we had people at Omega that started as temps that we brought on. They ended up liking the structure of the work and it resonated with them. They got a hang of it and they said, you know, this is cool. So this, that's, um, I wish was more open to people just from the employee side. For those currently in mortuary school, I was interested to, to hear that 50% of them aren't in the field five years after they graduate, which is sad. If you're going to go through this education process, take the time, spend the money, and then within a few years, you realize it's not for you, that's a shame. And I think that's also something that you talked about being mentored. I think some of these people get into, they're, they're the 22-year-old and they don't have a mentor or someone that believes in them at their first job. And that puts a sour taste in their mouth. And then we've lost a compassionate, empathetic person who's like willing to help families. They were called to help families. And because of other circumstances in that workplace, it caused them to leave. And I think that's a terrible way to lose good people. I agree with you. And we have to think about, you know, we talk about work-life balance, but I also learned during the certification, it's not really work-life balance because when you hear mm -hmm. balance, it's like you have to juggle things and not drop something, right? When you think of balancing, but it's more work-life integration. And I think our profession, at least I know for me personally, I really struggle with that because the level of responsibility I have in trying to disengage and, you know, for 19 years, it was like working all day and then going home and doing emails and all of that. And with our current organization, what I really appreciate is our CEO is a big proponent of that work-life integration and really teaching yeah. that's, this is where I've actually not felt guilty to not mm -hmm. like work after hours if I don't have to. I understand my level of responsibility, but it's always nice to step away. And so we've got to think about that for our funeral directors, right? Mm -hmm. How do we create a schedule that's, you know, and it and maybe not always able to do in smaller operations because they have to do removals all night and then come in and make arrangements still, right? But yeah. we have to think yeah. in terms of the burnout, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And mentorship is important. You said something really important, which is you have to manage for that burnout. And if you don't, you're you're gonna hurt your own business in the short, medium, and long term. It's it's but we, I see it, I see it all the time. I still see it all the time. And I think in the future, the the management teams at these businesses that do understand that work-life integration are going to recruit and keep the best people. And they're going to have the best ratings online. They're going to have the best family reviews. And, you know, they're going to grow and they're going to be, you know, the future. I agree. It's going to come down to what makes the difference between mm -hmm. this provider and the other, right? Like we all offer the same combination <laughs> of things for the FTC, but the difference is the yeah. experience and our people, right? And how we leave a customer mm -hmm. to feel after we've served them. And so while recruiting is so challenging right now, I think it's also important to balance that with a healthy culture or healthy work culture and not allowing behaviors that are disruptive to the culture and retaining folks just because you can't find someone else. Like we have that one rule that we will not sacrifice culture regardless of whether we can find staffing or not. I think that's probably uh, some of the most sound critical. hiring advice we've heard on the show. Really? Yeah. I mean, hire slow, fire fast. Um, I wish more. I, I, I think 
I mean, Omega is definitely guilty of it. And I saw the effect on culture. So I can attest to what you're saying is absolutely true. And it goes on, it goes on in every business, but I think death care businesses have a higher likelihood of this happening just because there are so many small businesses, small family businesses. Um, that happens a lot. And I think it's important to remember too, when you're working in a very small business, a family, small business, your associates are not your family members. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you've got to treat them in a very special way because typically you can't divorce your family members, right? But your employees that are not related to you can divorce you. So there are some things that we have to reflect back on and regardless of what size business we're in or who owns it or who runs it. At the end of the day, we're all people and we can't forget that. We have to be seen separate from our titles. We have to understand that when somebody walks Mm -hmm. in the door, we don't know what happened eight hours before. And so we've got to get down to that deep human level of those we work with and around. And I've learned a lot about that this summer working with our seasonal grounds team and just the stories, the amazing human stories. I learned a lot that it's important to see past the person that's in front of you and go deep. For the Death Care Collective, um, do you guys have like future plans and initiatives that you're trying to do? Or is it, it sounded like it kind of just kind of formed, you know, by happenstance, but it sounds like now there's like plans. So could you maybe give us a sneak peek of what to look out for? Yeah. So the amazing thing is when you bring nine leaders and nine drivers to the table, (laughs) things are going to happen, right? (laughs) And there's going to always have to be progress, no matter what club or group or whatever it is you belong in, you want to see progress. And we just have began a strategic planning sessions for 2023, the remainder of 2023 and 2024. And one of the things that uh, we've just established is kind of the leadership, the formal, because, you know, we were great. We were able to collaborate as nine leaders, but we realized that there's got to be a little bit of a hierarchy because we're trying to formalize our group a little bit. So we determined who was going to be the chair for the next year, uh, vice chair. So we've started to establish some roles. I had to take a little bit of a step back while I'm actively involved. I didn't want a level of responsibility in the group recognizing my capacity and bandwidth with my current priorities. And so the leadership team, they're probably going to post it on our website soon. So when they formally announce it, then you will know who the leaders are. But we're really focused on on membership. So the priority is membership and membership engagement and ensuring that we are providing what our members need. And then the other piece is, you know, and there's going to be different events. The big one that's coming up, actually, we're collaborating with ICCFA in the fall, which is in October in Arizona, called the Leadership Summit. So a year ago, ICCA approached us and asked if we wanted to collaborate. And so we thought it was a great opportunity to maybe help kind of form maybe what the contents might be, what might be helpful for our members. So if folks are wanting to attend something a little bit different than the the normal conventions and hear speakers regarding leadership, I think it's going to be a great event. So I encourage people to attend. But education, like bringing education to the forefront for our members and resources is kind of our focus. But no matter what we're going to do, we're going to stay true to our core values. Uh, We have very specific core values and our mission, right? So how do we know we're doing well? How do we know we're progressing? It's when we're working and keeping our vision and values aligned and making sure to the forefront, right? And so the idea is to empower and strengthen and collaborate. So everything we're going to do in the next year is going to be based around. Um, Is the leadership female only or is it? open to everyone. Yeah. So it's made up of our nine founding members. So we're starting with the founding members, but we recognize that we're also busy 
that we're going to start to form like subcommittees and engage other women because other women have asked us like, hey, how can I get more involved? How can I help? And we have so many mm-hmm. talented people that follow us and engage with us and is part of our membership. And so we want to create space at the table for everyone that wants to get involved. And like you said, we're just starting to form that because like we just like did this thing and didn't yeah, really yeah, know yeah. what this thing was. And then we realized it's a thing. And so we're in the process of like hitting the restart button and trying to formalize it. So eventually down mm-hmm. the road, we'll officially okay. become a nonprofit. Cool. And the leadership summit, is that open to everyone? Everyone. So anybody uh, that's a member of the ICCFA and I'm cool. sure even yeah, non-members can attend. I'm excited to see what's in store for you all because that that's actually sounds something like something that's going to be big yeah. or can be big and, and can be really powerful for the workforce of that care. So yeah, and I think you know if we continue to put our members at the forefront before ourselves, we can do amazing things, and that is kind of our goal. It's the best attitude. Others before take you staff. far. Yeah. Moving on to more of uh, an yeah. established association that you're a part of you are a kena an active kena board member right now so can you kind of explain what a kena board member like what the role of a kena board member is and what you do with kena i can explain how i view it (laughs) i guess right (laughs) so yes so we just finished our annual conference in washington dc it was my first time that was amazing and during that convention, I have now elevated to third vice president. So I will become Kena president in 2027, the year my oldest graduates from high school. So, um, and quite frankly, it's intimidating. And I don't feel like I'm quite ready to take on this responsibility, but our Kena board members are amazing, amazing people who are very kind, very supportive. So I feel very comforted in stepping into that role and learning lots. And so I think for Kena board members, of course, like any board you sit on is to do good for the association and give advice and uh, help the staff in whatever their goals are and provide the support and input and participate and contribute to whatever the strategic plans are for the association, right? And so it's to actively be involved to support the association and provide whatever insight you may find helpful. What can we look forward to besides you being president toward uh, for Kena in the near future? I think, you know, one of the things that Kena is well known for is its research as an association, right? That's one of the reasons I fell in love with Kena is the ad- educational aspect that an approach it takes. Um, yeah, I also Don't love we all? We, we, we love Barbara. Uh-huh. Yes, yes. So she was like the main reason I wanted to join Kena. I got to spend some amazing time with Barbara before I was on the board. And it was kind of fun because it was, dur- I had invited her out when I was the president of the state association to do some talks. Mm. And that was just as our state was shutting down during COVID. And I just got to know her and I was like, how do I stay connected to this lady? <laughs> like, I'm fanning her. Like, how do I stay connected? So I just raised my hand and said, I want to be on your board. And I didn't even know what that meant. And <laughs> because I just wanted to still be friends with Barbara. <laughs> So, and Barbara is a thoughtful leader. She's very articulate, very intelligent. I always speak to her and I always walk away learning something from her. And so her vision for Kena and her strategic planning, like we're focusing on what is a big concern for everyone, this licensing, this uh, hiring of people, right? It's one of the initiatives we're working on. There's other strategic plans that we're working on. And I apologize. I left that all out of my <laughs> brain great. till the next Kena meeting. Uh, yeah. And again, like I said, like, I don't know what I can share, right? <laughs> but yeah, just one of the strategic plans is like, we're yeah. brainstorming, right. trying to figure well, we, out how we to advance the profession. We definitely love Barbara here. Um, she's oh, yeah. 
her personality is just, uh, I don't know, just it's, she's it attracts you to her. Yeah. You want to, you want to work with her. You want to talk to her. That's just yeah. kind of how it is. Yes. <laughs> would you say someone that was looking to get more involved? Yes. Would you recommend, because you've been president of the state association, now Kena, kind of creating, you know, I, I know it's a collective and it's small now, but you're kind of creating and part of the founding of, I, I would assume going to be another association at some point. Do you feel like that is a good way to make an, a larger impact on death care than just maybe being a, you know, an owner or a, a funeral director? Yeah. So how do you affect change, right? You got to get involved depending on what your passion is and what interests you and way you think you can affect change. You definitely want to get involved with the local groups, you know, even the associations, right? That's a good start. I don't know about the other associations and how difficult it is to get on the boards, but if you can, like for Kena, a great way to start with us. And if you're not sure is joining the different committees. So the committees are made up of non-board members um, as well. So that's a good way to explore. That's how I started. I started on a committee with Kena before I became a board member. So there's different ways that you can get involved. Okay. Speaking of change, change, there was recently a, a five-hour FTC panel, and we were talking earlier, and you said you watched the whole thing. can't honestly say that I watched the whole thing. Um, but there's a lot of changes happening. What do you, from your perspective, as someone who's kind of seen a lot of different parts of death care, um, what do you think some of the more relevant things are that they're kind of proposing and what kind of impact do you think that'll actually have on death care going forward? Well, I think one of the first panel really spoke about posting your prices online, right? And there's two sides to that discussion. Of course, for the consumer, the argument could be transparency and everybody shops online, right? Since COVID, how many of us have signed up for Amazon. I never used to shop on Amazon till after COVID, um, during COVID and after COVID. So I can see that perspective when you're trying to look up in a business and trying to see what something costs. Maybe it's frustrating if it's not online, but also from a funeral provider perspective, it could create a bit of a disadvantage too, I think in some ways, because our price lists are st- so, you know, I believe that the general public who only makes this decision maybe once in their lifetime, if they're lucky, um, and interact with us only when they need to, maybe won't understand what all these line items mean on a GPL. And so when you're posting uh, prices online without any kind of context, the danger for me, or at least my personal view is, are they just comparing, maybe it wasn't about price. But then because they go online and you can see everybody's prices, they're just picking the provider based on price without really calling and talking to the providers. So are there going to be missed opportunities? That's actually uh, a really know. Those are just good something point, I think of. Right. We talk about transparency, but what that does is that just forces price transparency and not even real transparency, but it doesn't mean that just because I know your price, I know everything about your business. It's right? also like, even with GPLs, like across GPLs, if you if you take five company GPLs and ask like arrangers at the different firms to say how much a service would cost, they wouldn't even be able to do it. And they've probably worked in the industry for five to 10 years. It's just how you label things, how you structure things, what you're actually agreeing to when you say like delivering the casket to the graveside. Like, you know, it's just you you kind of get into semantics and you don't know if you're comparing apples to apples when just reading a GPL. And even industry professionals who have experience, I don't think would feel comfortable speaking on another company's GPL and how they structure their pricing conversations and those arrangement conversations. It's so different from company to company. Um, that That's something that I wish would kind of get cleared up, you know, kind of the terminology kind of being standardized so that when people do read like the name of a service, it's consistent um, around like their area and in their community. I don't see that happening 
now. I think GPLs are convoluted and tough to read. <laughs> I agree. And, and besides the minimum, you know, the direct cremation, direct burial, forwarding of remains and receiving of remains, everything else is a la carte. So how does the family know how to piece together the different charges and come up with a total on their own? Right. And so the other concern is like, what if you're the only provider in your hometown? So you don't need a website because everybody knows you. And are you going to be required to create a website to be in compliance? What does that cost to that provider? You know, when you talk about equality and equity, you know, it's just kind of interesting to me. It's almost like why fix something that's not broken? Because there has to be universal standards at some level. And I think that's what they're trying to do. It's like, these are going to be weird growing pains as we kind of establish that infrastructure or a new infrastructure. The rural, like mom and pop storefront that like everyone knows in town is a unique example. I, I'm interested to see how they, how they handle that because there are tons and tons of those businesses in middle America and, and everywhere. And one of the panelists, I think, or what I recall from that conversation was like, okay, then do you have to pay money for paid searches and SEO, you know, the biggest wallets will be able to then bring your uh, funeral home to the forefront, right? And when people are searching and how many funeral homes does a customer search before they make a decision? So there's so many things. I can see both sides. It will definitely yeah. be. Interesting Do you have an opinion or a want? Happens. I mean, you are a, you are a funeral. I would I would call you almost like an owner of a funeral business or many of them actually. So yeah. you know, do you have a opinion one way or the other? So I've got two different brands, right? I've got a traditional funeral home, and then I've got what we call storefronts here in Washington State. So. Folks that specialize, uh, our brand, Pacific Northwest Cremation, specializes in mostly direct cremation consumers, mostly do-it-yourself consumers. And I think for that brand specifically, we use Parting Pros right now. I'm in the process of now implementing that in my traditional funeral home. But I think if you're going to post it online, I would like to see it kind of in that format where you're posting your price list, but then you're walking the family through how to build their you know, what they want, because then that puts it in context, like walk them through, like, here's the questions we ask you, you answer yes or no, and here's the product. So not just posting the GPL, but maybe having some kind of online arrangement assistance. That's a really astute point because the GPL and the Parting Pro Arranger contain the same service listings and the same prices as one another. But with Parting Pro, you're actually building understanding of the services and process during that in that arranger. Whereas on a Word document or PDF GPL, if you have your basic services up here, and then you know two thirds down the page, you have your transportation charges and how it's laid out. They don't know to skip what's in the middle and go directly there. It's very difficult to to navigate, very difficult. Yeah. And I think transparency is important because for a lot of time, we didn't really talk about what we did. You know, families just think we just pick up the body and cremate and return the ashes. Sometimes they think we've picked up the body and already cremated, right? Like there's so many. And so obviously our profession has always been not very transparent, maybe in the work it takes for what we do. Right. Like we paint a pretty serene picture for our families and don't go into details. And so I know transparency is important, but I think we have to contextualize it if we're going to post it online through some kind of online arrangement process, you know, I think would be most helpful. I mean, I know there's other probably software out there. I I just I do think that that context is what matters and whether you're doing an arranger or just putting stuff online like that context is in death care i've found even me personally to be very difficult to really just put on a singular web page or you know in a 10 second like 
pitch to somebody. Like it's really difficult. And the more that we're forced to put certain things online, I don't know if that really solves a lot of the problems of transparency that we're really hoping it will. At least that's where I'm coming from. But yeah. You know, I don't know what the, I mean, maybe, maybe they're going to come up with this really elegant solution to <laughs> saying every funeral home has to post this. And all of a sudden now all of the families are now equipped with enough context to make a great decision, but I can't imagine that they're going to be able to do that. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. Say we post it online and then the basic service fee, which is non-declinable and the family calls and says, we don't need that. Because we just want to direct cremation, you know, and not understanding maybe what the basic service for your funeral director and staff really means, right? Because yeah. that's the number one question we get. Context matters what a lot. That? That's going to be really hard to figure out what the right context yeah. is to show. Yeah. And will it create a competitive yeah, advantage or disadvantage? Don't know. So as, you know, COO of Fairmount, can you kind of describe what you're doing there? I know you've <laughs> you're doing a lot already amongst all the other things. Um, and I'm sure this one is one now of them about your job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you spent an hour talking about all the yeah. things you're doing on the side. Yeah. So now, <laughs> yeah, now we'll get to the meat. Yeah. My chief executive officer, David Inner promoted me a year ago to chief operating officer. And it is probably the most rewarding and challenging role I've ever done in my career. Obviously, it has to be. It's a very important one in our organization. So my role is to oversee all of the operations, including HR, marketing. Along in collaboration with the CEO, we work together and with the executive team here at Fairmount, which we have so many talented leaders, very grateful for each and every one of them. The biggest transition, of course, where we were peers and now I'm kind of in the supervisory role, but they were very supportive and we were friends before and we're still friends. And I kind of see myself more as a, for the leadership team, the executive team, I see myself almost as a peer mentor as opposed to like, I'm the boss now. We're, we obviously we have roles and we're very respectful of our roles, but I see myself more as like, Hey, more as working together. I learn more from them than they probably learn from me. And so my primary role is just overseeing our five funeral homes and seven cemeteries and just making sure we're taking care of our families, running the daily operations, and then also being part of the executive team's strategic plans and how to continue to grow. We are a nonprofit, so nobody owns us. So what I love about the nonprofit is we get to have a lot of fun doing this because yeah. nobody benefits from everything we do goes back into our businesses. Because we're community-owned, we give back to our community. I remember when I was interviewing for the job, the CEO gave me, the, I asked, the values mission of the organization. And then the top, it said, be the change you want to see in the world by Mahatma Gandhi. And that was all it took for me to say yes, because I think it aligns with my personal values of just the humanity and the people part of it. I love people and relationships. I value that most in life. And so just being able to give back to our community. So we do a lot of community outreach. We just got a list of all of our events between now and December. And awesome. I think we're doing something almost every week, whether we're attending events in the community or having events at our facilities. The one that's going to be our first one and the most exciting one to see how that works out is our spooky wine tour. <laughs> So we're going to have wine and we're going to have this MC that's going to walk people through. I think we're planning on having a hayride and taking people mm. through the cemetery and giving them a history. Because like us as a cemetery in Spokane, we're almost the guardians, uh, as one employee mm. says, the guardians of Spokane's history. Because a lot of prominent right. people that have developed this community is in our care. And the reason we do things in our cemeteries specifically is we don't want people to be forgotten, right? So 
everyone in our care, they do get visited, but we want people to feel comfortable and safe in our cemeteries. And then to not forget all of the thousands of people buried in our I cemeteries. do have to give it up to, I'm sure funeral homes do stuff too, but even the, like the local cemetery around me, they put on these events for like Halloween where they give out pumpkins and there's these huge like events and like the whole community comes and it really, I feel like normalizes being on a cemetery. You see how beautiful it is. And, and I really applaud you guys in doing these events because they always end up being really nice and really, I feel like spread the word about how, how amazing it could be. Yeah, we're very fortunate with our marketing. Candace, who's our marketing director, gets a lot of this credit and her team. Her passion just exudes in her work and we all get to benefit in the community. But when the motives, there's really no motive, so to speak, financially Obviously, we're a business and we want to do well enough to continue to maintain our business, but that is not our primary goal. Our primary goal is to serve our community. It just has a different feel to it because the pressure isn't to continue to just keep making money. That's not the focus. The focus is to serve. And through service, I think success does come, even though a leader once told me they don't believe that. And I do believe that, that uh, if you serve, I think it's the, the best attitude come. to have. In keeping with that sentiment about service, I want to ask you our kind of capstone question to the podcast. What do you think death care looks like in 10 years? Well, I think none of us were prepared for the pandemic. And I think that has changed things for all of us, right? Not just in death care, but as human beings and the way we see the world. And I think, you know, in death care, we're going to have to really rethink of the way we were doing things pre-pandemic. I think a lot of us have made some shifts, but I think we have to now realize that the folks that are coming into the profession may not have the same ideals as those that have been doing it for 30 years, right? So we've got to create room and space. I think death care will look something more reflective of the people that are in the business as opposed to an image that we have to maintain because we always did it this way or, you know, we're the last to change, right? But it's kind of interesting because technology isn't always our friend. We're funeral directors. We're not tech gurus. But my, what happened when they took away all of our ability to do our job regularly? We figured it out. And so I think what's going to happen is we're going to have folks that are going to come into our desk space that are innovators and that will help us continue to move where we've already started utilizing technology more. I anticipate that. Five, 10 years ago, they talked about the baby boomers and us not being prepared for them. So that's going to be interesting as well in the next 10 years. Can we handle that when that starts? You know, are we in the middle? Are we at the beginning? Have we dealt with that population yet? They always talked about awesome. the baby boomers and not being well, prepared. Well, I think that is a very well thought out answer. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's um, a really good one, yeah. Sandra. Thank you. So Sandra, where can people find you, find the Death Care Collective, get active with Kena? Where are some of those so those places, links, anything? The Death Care Collective and Kena are on all social media platforms. So Facebook, LinkedIn. I know the Death Care <laughs> Collective, we have Instagram. We're trying to dabble in TikTok. <laughs> and you can find me personally on LinkedIn. So I do have a LinkedIn profile. Other than that, uh, you can contact me through our website here at Fairmount, Fairmount Memorial no, Association. No, no, don't, no, no, hard no. I probably shouldn't hard have that no, myself number, so I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah no, no, no. It's very nice of you. It's I'm very, very kind trusting. of you. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to stop. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. 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 I'm working no, on we're creating putting yourself out there. and saying no yeah. more. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Sandra. Um I think a lot of the work that you are doing and have done has been very inspiring and I'm excited to see what more you're going to do. Cause I know you're not done. So uh, thank you very much for joining us. 
Yes, thank you for having me. This yeah. Oh, no, you're natural. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're a natural. That's it great. Was, uh, yeah. <laughs> no yes. I appreciate you guys thinking of me and giving me the opportunity to share my story. All right. Well, for Will DeMichaelis, I'm Tyler Yamasaki. This is the Direct Information Podcast. Thank you for listening. Catch you guys next time. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. If you ever want to know more, please find us at directcremation.com. 